Hello, welcome, come in, come in. Get out of the cold and into the cave of the eco chamber. It's been a wet start to the year, but the team at Ends Report is back to bring you the latest hot takes on UK environmental policy, guided by your host, me, James Ajapon Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be learning why the former energy minister, Chris Skidmore, has left the Conservative Party, the Environment Secretary's plan to bring farmers and regulators into a new circle of trust, and we'll be finding out more about the return of pine martens to the new forest. For our deep dive, we'll be reflecting on the Housing Secretary, Michael Gove, and his green vision for planning in the year ahead. So let's get to it and explore this week's Eco Chamber! To help me sort the wheat from the chaff, I'm joined by ENDS Report's Shosha Aidy and Pippa Neal for this week's Big Green News. On the evening of the 5th of January, Chris Skidmore, MP for Kingswood, Gloucestershire and author of the government's 2022 Net Zero Review, announced he had resigned the whip meaning he has left the Parliamentary Conservative Party and would be resigning as an MP as soon as possible. Shosha, why has Skidmore done a runner? Essentially, he stepped down ahead of the vote on the offshore petroleum licensing bill, which if passed will mean that there'll have to be an annual licensing round for issuing offshore oil extraction permits. Um, And this is carried out by the North Sea Transition Authority or the STA. In a statement, he said that as the former energy minister who signed the UK's net zero commitment by 2015 to law, I cannot vote for a bill that clearly promotes the production of new oil and gas. So he's standing by his laurels. So what is this bill and why has King Henry VIII uh, reared his head? So the um, bill seeks to introduce a fixed term for new oil and gas licensing rounds, uh, which would amend the current Petroleum Act set out in 1998 and uses Henry VIII clauses. Um, These powers are a bit controversial because they allow ministers to use secondary legislation to make changes to the primary legislation without necessarily having to go through the full process that an Act of Parliament would usually require. So in a bit of a history lesson, um, this sort of goes back to the Statute of Proclamations in 1539, which is when Henry VIII gained the right to pass laws directly by passing Parliament. So not very democratic. Mm. My way or the highway, says Henry VIII. So what's the differences that the, the North Sea Transition Authority can expect if this bill should become an act? It's a really interesting one because it's um, it's not so much change for them because before they could basically carry out a licensing round whenever they liked, but now they would be required to do one every year. So that's the change. And actually up until 2019, there was a licensing round held pretty much annually. Um, but between then and now, there's only been one, the 33rd, uh, which was launched in 2022 with licenses awarded in October of last year. And the reason there was a big break is that there was a new climate compatibility checkpoint issued um, in 2022, which sort of the goal of it was to mean that when they ran those licensing rounds, it had to be um, in line with the government's duty to meet net zero by 2050. Um, And that's changed. Pippa, can you just take us through that change? So Under the changes, there'll be two new tests to replace the previous climate compatibility checkpoint test. 
Um, and the first of these is the carbon intensity test. And this would be met if the carbon intensity of the produced domestic gas is lower than the carbon intensity of liquefied natural gas. Um, and the second is a net importer test, which would be met if the UK is projected to be a net importer of both oil and gas over a 15-year assessment period. Um, and according to the latest wording of the bill, um, which we should state the bill is currently moving through the committee stage reading, so this could change. Um, but under the current wording, granting these licences still remains subject to existing environmental regulatory requirements, which remain unaffected by the duty. But under the bill, there is a new definition of carbon intensity, which will now need to account for emissions of greenhouse gases other than carbon dioxide, such as methane and nitrous oxide. Um, and the government's reason for doing this is it's expected to be necessary to meet our international reporting requirements in the next five to ten years. So there's kind of, yeah, a few different changes to the kind of precise wording. Skidmore clearly doesn't like this wording. Why does he find this bill so controversial, Shosha? So the bill sort of marks a dividing line between the government and the opposition party, Labour, um, which has said that if it's elected, it will not issue any new oil and gas licences. Um, in a statement, Skidmore said, well, no one is denying there's a role for existing oil and gas in the transition to net zero. Um, the International Energy Agency, um, the UNCCC, and the Committee on Climate Change have all stated there must be no additional new oil and gas production on top of what's already been committed. And again, this is about reaching that net zero goal. Um, and also, he points out it's to do with limiting temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, uh, which is another key aim for the UK. And globally. Um, and globally. With climate talks. Yeah, right. So to try and limit that rise from pre-industrial levels. Yeah, I think his, his basic thing is just it really um, takes us down from being a climate leader because we're not necessarily practising what we preach in the eyes of the international community. And how has this gone down then amongst our own MPs? Uh, so over the weekend, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt said that he profoundly disagreed with Skidmore's reason for resigning. He told the BBC that the Climate Change Committee have said that we are very clear that even when we reach net zero in 2050, we will still get a significant proportion of our energy from fossil fuels and that domestic oil and gas is four times cleaner than imported oil and gas. Um, however, yeah, his kind of statements have not gone down particularly well. Um, and the all-party parliamentary group for climate have also kind of sort of started talking about this. Um, and they've signed a letter to the Net Zero Secretary, Claire Coutinho, requesting that the bill be withdrawn. Um, and the signatories of this letter include the Tory peer and former DEFRA minister, Lord Zach Goldsmith, who also quit his ministerial post in the Foreign Office last year after accusing the Prime Minister of being simply uninterested in the environment. So it's definitely kind of there's this this wave of kind of quote unquote traditional conservatives that seem to be kind of exiting the party following these so-called Rishi Sunak's rollbacks over net zero. Mm, there is, there does seem to be a real split, doesn't there, forming. Uh, should this pass, when will this come into effect? So as per clause two of the bill, um, the act will come into force two months after it's enacted by parliament. Um, and as petroleum licensing is not a devolved matter, it's worth saying this won't just affect England and Wales. It will also affect all the UK nations. So that's Northern Ireland and Scotland as well. 
On to our next story, where the Environment Secretary Steve Barclay has asked officials to review how DEFRA's regulator work with farmers. Alongside that, he's also put forward an uplift in funding for some environmental land management payments as part of a speech he delivered at the Oxford Farming Conference earlier this month. So, what's happened? So, I think it's important to point out that this isn't a full-scale regulatory review, but Barclay did make clear to farmers at the conference that he wants to see the relationships between the regulators improve. So by regulators here, we mean Natural England, the Rural Payments Agency, the Forestry Commission and the Environment Agency. And as part of his speech, he said that what he's heard frequently from farmers is that the starting point of too many interactions with regulatory bodies is one way where they are treated with suspicion and not trust. He said, in quotes, in my experience, no one cares more about the land, the nature around them or the passing of their farm to future generations in good health than the farmers who are the custodians of that land. So the relationship from government and regulatory bodies should better reflect this. In a rare moment of union, it seems that there were some very happy conservationists and farmers following Barclay's speech. Yes. So for all those who love species-rich grasslands, which hopefully is most of the listeners on I, the eco chamber, I do. I'm a species-rich grasslands <laughs> kind of guy. Um, it was announced that stewardship payments under environmental land management schemes, or ELMS, will be made for £646 per hectare, up from £182 per hectare previously. Um, And this payment could be made for features such as rivers and streams, reed beds, grazed woodlands and scrub. Um, Farmers and landowners also stand to earn £1,242 per hectare for connecting rivers and floodplain habitat and £1,489 per hectare for making room for a river to move. It was also announced that there's going to be these so-called premium payments, which will include an option for £765 per hectare to be paid out for creating nesting plots for lapwings. So it's a good day if you're a lapwing. Um, And DEFRA also said that there will be a 10% increase in the average value of agreements in the sustainable farming incentive and the countryside stewardship tier of ELMS. Um, And yeah, if if you are interested to learn more about species-rich grasslands, I would highly recommend the episode of the Eco Chamber where James spoke to Joe Riggle, Um, who's from Plant Life. I think that's episode 67. But yeah, that kind of talked about all things species-rich grasslands. It was very cool. I've never been more excited to talk about grass than that episode. (laughs) And there was a lot of numbers there that you've just given us. But for any end subscribers, you can go onto a website, you can look through those tier payments. There is a lot of money there, it sounds like, but it's probably also worth highlighting that farmers' direct payments from this year are going to be decreasing significantly as we sort of tail off to 2027. Um, So swings and roundabouts, I suppose. I would say as well that for any end subscribers, if you're keen to see how farming can introduce, you know, conservation schemes like species-rich grasslands, do check out our film, The Business of Wildflowers, uh, where we spoke with Holcomb Hall's conservation manager, Jake Fines, not only about the importance of these habitats, but also how you can do it and how you can make the money stack up. Um, and yeah, I know he would be very, very happy to hear about that increase uh, species grassland payment. Before we leave Barclay, he did have some remarks on the Dartmoor review, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, so this is in reference to the independent review on Dartmoor that was published in December, which was kind of looking at the deteriorating 
ecological health of Dartmoor and its protected sites um, and kind of assessing strategies to reverse these trends. Um, and one of the top recommendations of the review was for a landscape level delivery strategy to resolve entrenched problems across the national park. Um, and an interesting take from Barclay is that he said the report showed that there are lessons to be learned in the relationship with those who manage and care for the land and that he is keen to ensure they are heeded. In June, ENDS actually published a documentary which revealed that hundreds of millions of taxpayer pounds have been poured into green farming schemes in national parks, including Dartmoor, while these protected sites in the same places have become degraded. Um, so yeah, if you want to learn more about Dartmoor, check out Wilderness, the wounding of England's last great wild spaces. And now on to the last story this week, and it's all about the mustelids in the new forest. Shosha, break the news for us. What's going on? I'm very happy to. It's a very good news story. A three-year study by Forestry England has found that pine martins are coming back to the National Park after decades of absence. Nice. So conservationists confirmed the discovery through analysing more than a thousand hours um, of footage that was collected from 30 hidden cameras placed in 11 different parts of the New Forest. And they not only confirmed um, these sightings of the pine martens uh, were accurate, but also the presence of kits and young pine martens, um, which suggests that breeding is taking place, which um, is great news for conservationists as it suggests that they are getting established in that area. Um, so the next step for them is to try and estimate the size of the population and also how they're using um, the habitat around them. So how does this fit into the Pine Martin Master Plan? There is one, the so-called Long-Term Strategic Recovery Plan for Pine Martins in Britain, uh, which is much less catchy than the Master Plan. Um, it was published in 2021 by Natural England, Nature Scott and the Vincent Wildlife Trust. The priority regions for pine martin introductions are in the southwest of England, spanning the counties of Somerset and Devon, as they're sufficiently close enough to restore populations in Wales and Gloucestershire. And they're also looking at South Cumbria as a potential place for reintroductions too. Awesome. And what's going on, you know, in a practical way, what's happening for pine martins? So on the ground, um, there have been 18 Scottish pine martens that arrived in the Forest of Dean as of September 2019. Um, and Forestry England itself says it's supporting a range of projects to help secure the return of pine martens and also monitoring populations in the New Forest, Kilda Forest, Grisdale Forest and the Forest of Dean. Would you like to hear my mustelids joke? Yeah, of I course. <laughs> What's the difference between a weasel and a stoat? I don't know. One is weaselly recognisable and the other is totally different. <laughs> that sounds like a Christmas cracker joke. <laughs> Time for our moment of the week as we reflect on something fun, weird, wacky, strange, cool, nice. All the things like sugar and spice. Um Shosha, what's your moment of the week? So my moment of the week is this government-sponsored initiative to try and stop fly-tipping in Wales. Um, basically, walkers were shocked by horrible pictures of fly-tipped waste um, on the side of a digivan that was driving around the Brecon Beacons. And it said, imagine this. So I guess it's 
trying to get walkers to reflect on how their beauty spots could be ruined by waste um, through the pictures. And the aim is to protect these landscapes um, because apparently fly tipping is a big problem in Wales. Mm. I just thought it was a very, very inventive method of doing it. And um, I wonder if it will act as a deterrent or it will just sort of ruin people's day. So it's a, it's a van with the image, digital image on the side of the van with the picture of the waste of where it could be dumped. Yeah. Couldn't that also be like an advertisement? Like you could see it being dumped here. Fly <laughs> tippers. Imagine. It's definitely making some assumptions about people's um, way of thinking, I uh, think. Uh, maybe that's his yeah. mind, yeah. Pippa, what's yours? So mine has to be this amazing, amazing video of a mouse filmed tidying up a man's shed every night. Um, so basically, after regularly discovering that things from the night before had been mysteriously tidied away, retired postman Rodney Holbrook set up a night vision camera on his workbench. Um, and yeah, there's this amazing video of the, this mouse kind of putting things back into this little little box. And he's quoted in the BBC as saying that he doesn't bother tidying up now. He just leaves things out of the box and the mice put it back in its place by the morning. I think they would tidy up my wife if I left her in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. But I think it is just an amazing video. I hope there's some kind of film or spin-off that comes out of this, the, yeah. the mouse, you know. If you're ever wondering where your, like, missing socks are, maybe. <laughs> That's it. Just a very tidy mouse. Yeah. Time for our deep dive as we fall back in love with the future. Not my words, but those of our Housing Secretary Michael Gove as part of his vision for major planning reforms announced at the tail end of last year. We know he's got his heart set on changes to the National Planning Policy Framework. He wants a review looking into the role of statutory consultees, plus he's got plans to scrap mandatory housing targets for councils. This and more. So what is Gove's green agenda for 2024? To help me find out, I'm joined by N's Features Editor, Tess Colley. Tess, at the end of last year, Go said he was worried about delay and procrastination with statutory consulting. Who was he taking aim at? Very specifically, he was taking aim at Natural England and the Environment Agency and Historic England. Um, amongst other arm's length bodies, he said, but those are the main ones, who he said need to improve. Um, this is in terms of... Project speed, I think you could still call it like the green agenda is more of a speed agenda uh, and it's all about getting housing uh, going. Um, but at right. the same time, trying not to, I think, uh, disquiet too many of the, your uh, traditional conservative voters in the, the south, southeast, southwest uh, who don't want building in their green belt. Uh, so this is the tension in all these announcements. So what is he doing then to reform this statutory consultee relationship? Um, well, what he's doing is launching a review. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. We love a review. Um, um, basically, what he's got, he's asked Sam Richards, who is a former special advisor um, on Energy Environment Number 10, and now chief exec of a campaign group called Britain Remade, um, and who was described as uh, one pat particular uh, right-wing commentator um, as, you know, kind of a lead, a, a victory for the Yimbies that he had been selected. For the Yimbies? The, the Yimbies, yes. The Yimbies, yes, the wise. The Yimbies, yeah. The yes in my yes, backyard. Yes in my backyard, yeah. Okay. Um, he's going to lead a, a three-month review into how they're working, basically, and can, it, can they be sped up? Um, he did caveat what he said by saying that 
this is Gove, statutory consultees are an important check and balance within our planning system and safeguarding the environment, respecting heritage, ensuring health and safety considerations are properly taken into account. So he's saying they are important, but uh, they're not they're not doing well enough. Um, I think specifically he, you know, he he said Natural England, you've got 21 days to respond as a statutory consultee. Um, but in some cases they're giving holding replies or yes, I'll, I'll come back to you later. Uh, he phrased it like that. Um, and he's saying this isn't good enough. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, for my own reference, what is a statutory consultee? So basically there's specific groups which local planning authorities are required to consult prior to a decision being made on a, on a plan application. In particular scenarios, obviously Natural England are called upon when there's a protected sites involved, uh, environment agency, if there's anything that comes under their remit, such as, um, you know, landfill sites or, or, or rivers, river pollution, uh, that sort of thing. So they have to be consulted. But yeah, that's that's where it's rubbing up the wrong way with some people. And the layman might think, well, that can't be too many responses that they have to deal with. But it's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. So Natural England, as of last year, 2022 to 23, responded to 17,761 planning applications. Mm. Um, and of that, they responded to around 15,000 within the agreed deadline, uh, which is about 86% of the total. Um, and 756 um, had an extension agreed. So there, there is a lot for them to be to be getting through. But the problem is, as Gove has it, as you put it, that there's too many of these sort of holding responses where you can sort of use the time limit to say, oh, I've done it, but actually there's a delay in the planning system. So says Gove. What else then has he got in store for 2024? Well, he particularly wants to, he said, concentrate development in cities. Uh, And in his this speech he made, he took particular aim at London, saying that radical action is required there. Um, he said while he's you know in favour of affordable and social housing in his view that the mayor Sadiq Khan uh, is re- is currently requiring too high a percentage of affordable homes in every new development, which in Gove's words imposes such significant costs that in many cases development doesn't go ahead at all. Um, and you know looking at the figures in the last three years, the average number of, of net additional dwellings provided by the mayor of London was 38,000. So that's about 15,000 fewer every year than the target set out in the London plan. Could there be a political motive to why London was picked out? There could be. Maybe. Maybe. We couldn't possibly say though, could we, James? We could not. What we can comment on though is Go's plan. What does he want to do about it? Uh, Once again, it's going to be a review, James. Excellent. So he's asked Christopher uh, Kakowski, Casey, the lawyer, uh, Councillor James Jameson, Paul Monaghan and Dr. Wei Yang to review the London plan and identify, now I quote, where changes to policy could speed up the delivery of much needed homes in urban city sites in the heart of our capital. Money. Let's talk about money. Were there any new pots of cash for from Gove? Yes. Yeah, so he talked about um, government using five million to, to further the use of local development orders, which he described as an underused weapon in the planning armory, um, due to them being, again, in his own words, powerful ways to cut red tape and grant planning permission up front. Um, and he kind of talked about how in Somerset, the council there is using a, a local development order to transform a, a big brownfield site um, and create kind of a, a huge advanced manufacturing smart campus space 
Um, All saying, the gigawatts. Yes, 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 yes. And if this is successful, um, the government would would expand upon it. Um, but the main thing there is that it's it's sort of like he said, it's it's a way to to cut the red tape, which often not always, but sometimes can be about cutting the green tape too. There were some more controversial announcement in Go's pitch, weren't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it depends. It depends where where you you stand on it all. He is scrapping mandatory housing targets for local planning authorities, um, with with those councils being given some relative freedom to determine uh, their own targets, and effectively means the end of the the kind of the, the big conservative um, targets to see three hundred thousand homes built a year. Um, by the mid 2020s and this is a big thing because as is widely talked about we're in a, a housing crisis here in the UK people cannot buy people who are just earning normal amounts of money can't get on the housing uh, ladder um and developers have not were not happy with with this announcement Neil Jefferson the managing director at um the Home Builders Federation said the removal of those housing targets will be extremely damaging for the delivery of new homes um of course, if you don't want to see more new homes, I guess it's good news. Mm. And if that wasn't a bitter enough pill for house builders to swallow, the government had some more medication to administer, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. Um, so on the same day, uh, the government published its response to the, the National Planning Policy Framework Review Consultation. Lots of long words there. Um, which is essentially this NPPF, uh, I'll just use the acronym, is the National Blueprint for housing development in England. And among the changes, one of them is it essentially makes it more difficult for land to be removed from the green belt or to be identified for housing development in a, in a local plan. So in the previous version of the MPPF, it said that once established, green belt boundaries should only be altered where exceptional circumstances are fully evidenced and justified through the preparation of updating of plans. Um which is, I think, already fairly, you know, trying to dissuade people from doing it. It now says that once established, there is no requirement for green belt boundaries to be reviewed or changed when plans are being prepared or updated. So basically, it's gone from you don't, you shouldn't do it often to don't do it. Mm. Um, and yeah, this is um, green belt, green belt land and development is probably going to be a big talking point this year as the election looms. Right, and it is then that's a win for NIMBYs, right? <laughs> yeah, they're not in my backyards. If your backyard faces onto the green belt, then yeah, um, <laughs> it would appear so. Though it does, it contrasts uh, quite strikingly with the position that Labour has taken. Uh, and I'm sure that's no accident um, because around the time of the Labour conference uh, last October, Keir Starmer, the, the leader, announced that um, you know, if if elected, Labour want to build 1.5 million homes over a five-year period. And the way to do that is to build on the not-so-green parts of the Green Belt, he said, calling it the Grey Belt, uh, and basically make it easier to develop those areas for local councils. So that's drawing quite a clear line, I think, between the two parties. Um, but either way, it's making how you build homes, where you build homes, a big subject of conversation. I love that. Yeah, the Grey Belt, which is pretty grey at the moment. Um, to scrub or not to scrub, I remember our conversations. Yes. yes. Um, okay, so what wasn't in Gove's speech? So what wasn't in the speech but did come out on the same day uh, was this new Freeport's delivery roadmap. Um, that's interesting for us in the eco chamber because there's kind of planning and planning implications there. Um, so free Freeport's 
if considered nationally important infrastructure, are set to benefit from a reformed consenting process, basically from this spring. Um, they're trying to shave about five months off the whole thing, he said in his speech. Um, and this includes being able to use a fast track route for seeking development consent. Uh, and it also stated in this roadmap that the government will provide advice to relevant statutory consultees, such as Natural England and the EA, to ensure they understand the priority of free ports. Mm. Um, so it was an interest. It's quite a big chunk if anyone wants to go and look at it. It's quite a large section of this roadmap. It's all about planning. A free port. Can you just remind me what that is? Ports with benefits. Port. I love it. <laughs> So basically, these the free ports, they've been presented by the government as a Brexit benefit, which will boost the economy and, and all this sort of thing. But there have been concerns raised by green groups in, in recent years about this specific thing about planning regulations. Because in some places, the free port um, outer boundaries are actually very big. Um, and in some places, they overlap with, with some national parks like, like wow. Dartmoor, uh, North York Moors and the New Forest. Um Government always says local planning authorities will still, you know, they decide what gets built and what doesn't in those places. Um, but it's just opening opening the door a bit to 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 worry for, for green groups. It is a big, bold policy move and goes no stranger to those. But he has lost his war on nitrates, hasn't he? Yeah. Neut- neutrality is is here to stay, <laughs> at least for now. Um, he made no mention of it in, in this speech, but the, the day after it, the uh, Housing Department's website confirmed it, it would the government won't be attempting to bring forward any more primary legislation. This isn't um, a huge surprise. I think that there'd been a, a once it wasn't, and nothing was said in the King's speech, it became clear that the government didn't particularly want to die on this hill after all, despite having tried to back in September when it tried to kibosh the rules entirely. Um, big, big win for green groups and political opposition who opposed uh, that attempt back last year. Um, and, you know, commenting to us, it ends the, the shadow DEFRA secretary, Steve Reed and Labour's uh, deputy leader, Angela Rayner, they kind of led the opposition to those amendments together. Um, they celebrated having forced the Tories into a humiliating climb down. Uh, so, yeah, they're enjoying that one. My thanks to Shosha AD, Pippa Neal and Tess Colley for coming on to this week's episode, where I've learned that Chris Skidmore is running for those hills as he leaves the Conservative Party, that Steve Barclay, our Environment Secretary, is trying very hard to make friends with our farmers, and Pine Martins are really that cool. They're coming back to the New Forest. And for our deep dive, Gove's plan for a green future, it might not be as straightforward as he thinks. This podcast would not be possible without the readers of Ends Report, whose subscriptions ensure that important investigative journalism about the UK's natural environment actually takes place. We would love to hear from you listeners with your thoughts, views and opinions. So you can reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on our socials using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.